0: Siachtan, an Indo-
1: clicletter! We had seen these end of chacht the
0: chance and I would like everyone for to of you to Skilti fis eat. We had been waiting and you had suggested something more than the October one summer. I was very happy in this episode of the Indo-Daily. No one really for a very long time could have possibly envisaged a day when an Irish nationalist party that doesn't even recognise Northern Ireland's existence would be in the position to nominate a First Minister. Sinn Féin is the largest political party in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And it's the joint largest party in the Republic's doll.
1: Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality and on the basis of social justice.
0: The polls point to the party becoming even stronger in the years ahead and to the possibility that it will lead a government. We will not consider coalition with Sinn Féin. Um, Oil and water doesn't mix. It's not just about the past, um, it's more about the future. Um, They're a high-tax, anti-trade, anti-jobs party. Um, They're populists, um, they're nationalists uh, of the worst sort, uh, often sectarian. Sinn Féin's history with the IRA, its drive for a united Ireland and its notoriously rigid internal discipline distinguishes it from all other political parties. But what's it really like behind closed doors? And what would a Dublin government led by Sinn Féin look like?
1: I think they have made a lot of promises that they can't keep, basically completely reliant on corporation tax and FDI from huge multinational conglomerates. We are, they are not going to want to overtax because if they overtax they will leave the republic so the notion of a 32-county socialist republic is not possible in the way that people think it's going to happen
0: journalist Stephen Moore just written a book on the party addressing those very questions it's called The Long Game Inside Sinn Féin and I'm pleased to say Aoife joins me on the line Writing a book is an arduous task. Uh, Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time. It's a big commitment. It's a big gamble in many ways because you're spending a lot of time and you're putting everything into this one product in the end. It's not like writing an article for the paper. Why did you do this?
1: I always thought at some point that I would write a book. Um, I didn't know what about. And then during the career, um, I kind of... Especially living in the Republic, I kind of made um, a bit of a brand out of explaining what would be very complicated aspects of Northern Ireland politics um, in a more accessible way to people who live in the Republic, because there is quite a lot of ignorance um, about the North and the Republic, um, and it's something that it has always bothered me. It is something that has made my life quite difficult. <laughs> um And it was just something I thought was needed. And the the continual rise of popularity in Sinn Féin then gave rise to more and more ignorance. Ignorance about Sinn Féin, where they came from, and the North. And I was already thinking about it when Penguin contacted me. And they said that they wanted a book about Sinn Féin. And I thought it was a good idea. And I ventured to write a contemporary I don't know if it's a history, but a contemporary history about how Shan Fein, who they are, how they are, where they came from, and how they operate. Um, because I do believe that young people in the South are becoming more Republican. Now I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg type thing. You know, I don't know if it's because Sinn Fein are popular, that Republicanisms get more popular or popular or Republicanism's get more popular, so Shan Fein's getting more popular. But I have been concerned not only about the demonization of young people um, who joined paramilitary organisations in the 1960s and 70s in a horrendous uh, conflict time. But I've also been really concerned about the romanticisation of the IRA or the glamorization of the Troubles. So I haven't set out to villainize anybody in this book or, or anything like that. It's to explain who Fein are because... I think if they're going to run the country, for want of a better word, north and south, there has not really been a decent book. And I'm I'm not saying that um demaline the other authors, but Sinn Féin are so secretive; it is hard. But do we write a decent book about that party um for a very long time? And I thought now was the time.
0: Uh, we, was the was the party at an official level helpful or, or no. discouraging?
1: <laughs> Sinn Féin, where um unhelpful at best obstructive at worst they made it very clear from pretty early on they didn't want this book to be written I was told after numerous emails that I was no longer to contact them I received an email from their solicitor who told me I was no longer to contact the press office that I was to contact the solicitor being the type of person I am I ignored the email and printed it out and now it's the second page in the book (laughs) um but Mary Lou MacDonald was one of the first people I told about the book. She was relatively pleased. She said that my parents must have been proud of me and um she said that she was going to tell Pearson Michelle and that they would they would speak about it. And then for the next year I was messed around from pulled from Polarity Post. I was told TDs were told not to speak to me, MLAs were told not to speak to me, appointments were cancelled, I had a meeting organised at one point with Michelle O'Neill and Connor Murphy, I drove two hours to Belfast and by the time I got to Stormont they told me that they weren't there. And so on it went, um, to the point where I stopped contacting Sinn Féin in any way, shape or form. I was then given one interview with Jerry Kelly in which he never answered any question directly and I gave up after 20 minutes and left.
0: How did you get past the barriers then? So how do we because get to stage?
1: Because it's much easier. It was much easier for people to talk to me when they didn't tell the party they were talking to me. So the book is carried out. The The interviews are anonymous, as many of these types of books are, Um, not only because of the IRA element, but because a lot of people who were interviewed for the book are still in Sinn Féin. They still come from Republican backgrounds and Republican families. A lot of them are IRA, former IRA. Still believe in the oath that they took. So the interviews are carried out anonymously many people with Sinn Féin uh, at the minute still did not speak to me, they just did not tell the party they were speaking to me because the party as far as I'm aware were actively telling people not to speak to me um, and then it got to a point where Mary Lou McDonald went on news talk about a year and a half later and she was asked if I had asked her for an interview and she said that it was, to the best of her knowledge I had not so it became very uh, obstructive and confusing. And at the start, I took it very personally. <laughs> um, people who I would have had a pint me in the doll Bar um, ignored me in the quarters. People would not answer their phones. I went to the Ardesh, and it was like being a radioactive spider. Every time I walked towards people, they walked the other direction. Uh, I was like Moses parting the Red Sea for a while. Um, but I got it done. But it was not easy. There had been... Days were, to be honest, you know, I nearly threw my laptop out the window. Um, there was a lot of tears <laughs> and frustration that it got done.
0: Aoife, you've mentioned in this um, interview the letters IRA. I think it's five times. And mm-hmm. in a number of other interviews about this book, you've always mentioned that. So I suppose I'm very tempted to ask, and I'm just going to ask it. I mean, is the book about Sinn Féin or, or is it about the IRA? I mean... You,
1: you can't talk about Sinn Féin without talking about the IRA. Not in the history of Sinn Féin. The IRA are not around, are not calling the shots in Sinn Féin now. However, the book starts in 1981. The book starts at the hunger strike and Sinn Féin came from the IRA. And to be honest, I don't think, uh, I think they are trying to appeal to a different audience now, but they haven't shied away from that. You only need to look at hunger strike commemorations and Bobby Stories Funeral. They know that they do not shy away from that part of it. They do talk in very watery language now about victims and legacy and all of that, but you cannot talk about, you know, Sinn Féin, I would say, I think they would agree, but I think Sinn Féin's greatest achievement is the peace process. But the reason there was a peace process is because we needed an IRA ceasefire and we also needed uh, concessions from the British state. So to argue that you could talk about Sinn Féin's talking about the IRA, I don't
0: think it would be a very good book. What stands out for you? I mean, what's what's the best part of the book from your point of view?
1: I think the ability to bring people who were so entrenched in conflict, men who had joined the IRA at 16 and then in their 50s could be talked out of violence, could be talked into peace, could be talked to laying down their weapons, and also to bring a community with them. I mean, there are thousands of people, and I know obviously in the loyalist and unionist community there are as well, but I'm talking specifically about... There are thousands of people who have family who were maimed and killed by the British Army or Loyalist forces. And to be able to convince, they didn't have to convince everyone, but they did have to convince their base. And their base were people who had been very, very hurt, fatally hurt by those forces. And to convince them that peace was the way forward, because a lot of people really weren't sure about the peace process in the Republican community, still aren't. And I think the ability to bring the entire base with them to peace is something that they should be incredibly proud of, and I think, as well, nationalist parties not in Scotland or here, but nationalist parties the world over have done have gone the other way from Sinn Féin. They have slid into the right wing, where they demonise refugee communities and immigrant communities, and they use nationalism as Ireland for the Irish. That is not what Sinn Féin has done, and what they have done in Dublin up until a point until well, we would say until the last couple of years. Sinn would went into working class communities and their message was not to demonise vulnerable immigrant communities. It was to point out the issues with the current government and a lot of people, a lot of journalists even, we give them credit in in the Republic for in those very working class communities in, in Dublin, especially in Cork, that we didn't slide into a right wing uh, revolts after the last crash because Sinn Féin were not buying that job and they could have very easily done that and other nationalist parties across the world have done that if you just look at Italy and, and Spain so I think they have a lot to be proud of but they also have a very dark history and I think that's why they didn't want me writing the book
0: The book starts in 1981 obviously since 1981 Sinn Féin was dominated by two men. That was Jerry Adams and Martin mm-hmm. McGuinness. Did you manage in the book to give us any more about that relationship? Who was in charge? What that relationship was like?
1: Yeah, Jerry was in charge. Um, Martin would have deferred to Jerry, not publicly, but personally would have deferred to Jerry. Um, I don't think he was necessarily intimidated by him, but there was a feeling that Jerry had the final call. Most people I met, that's politicians, security services, government, civil servants, Um, most of them preferred Martin. They said Martin was much more trustworthy, he was easier to deal with. Um, He could be very scary, very cold, but they would have preferred Martin in terms of negotiations. Jerry has a really good reputation with the younger people uh, who work for Sinn Féin, younger MLAs. which is quite at odds, I think, with his public persona sometimes. You know, a lot of young women I spoke to and young men who currently work for Sinn Féin or are young MLA's, they had a really good word to say on Jerry Adams, which I was surprised at. And saying that, having met Jerry Adams a number of times through work, he is a very affable, charming person. Um, but I suppose to lead a movement, you have to be. But I think the strangest thing or the most surprising thing for me was that In the book, through my investigation in the book, I found that Martin McGuinness wanted Jerry Adams to stand down um, during the time of the revelations about his niece Anya Adams. Jerry had known uh, for a long time because Anya told him that his brother Liam had been raping her since she was a child. And when it emerged in the press, Martin McGuinness wanted Jerry to stand down as the leader of Sinn Féin until it all blew over. Um, Jerry Adams refused, nothing changed and we all know how it worked
0: out. You can clearly see that sometimes in situations like this, people like to take political advantage without recognising, for example, the trauma that the, Jerry Adams' family went through as a result of the abuse uh, that was inflicted on them by their father. And in many ways, that entire family are victims including Jerry Adams.
1: But I thought that was quite a pivotal moment because there are certain things in, in all violent movements that you can excuse, uh, where it's bombing, you know, the murder and the mayhem. But it did very much appear that the sex abuse, not only with Anya Adams but with Maria Cahill as well, was something that almost brought Jerry Adams down within his own party because it is not something that the party and the base were willing
0: to excuse. Is there any indication in the book as to why Jerry Adams did not decide in the end to stand aside after the revelations as to to his brother?
1: He didn't want to, for starters. Um, Jerry Adams is not a person who can be told what to do. And he said that if he stood down, it would create an impression that there was something to stand down for, that he had in some way acted wrongly. And he... Insisted that he hadn't, so he refused to stand down. And the meeting in which they tried to oust Jerry Adams never really got off the ground.
0: When Jerry Adams left the scene, eventually he mm-hmm. handed over the reins. Well, I mean, obviously there was a process, but I think if you look back many, many years ago, not many people would have expected Marylin McDonald to be the person who would no. uh, who, who would become president of Sinn Féin. You have mentioned that you you didn't get an interview specifically with Mary Lou about this book, but you would have spoken to her in the past. Mm -hmm. What's your impression of of Mary Lou? how, How do you think someone of Mary Lou's background managed to become the president of Sinn Féin? Mary Lou
1: is very good with people. Um, she has a very warm personality, she's very charming, she's very like Jerry in that instance. She can adapt her personality to her surroundings, she puts people at ease. And I think whether that's at an IRA commemoration for uh, hunger strikers or volunteers, or it's you know, in the Schenkel Road doing across community things, she can mould her personality and do what's needed, and that's consummate politician. And I think that's how she's ended up the leader of Sinn Féin. She's incredibly intelligent and she's very determined. She's an incredible politician. I think that comes across in the book. I think Sinn Féin had gone as far as they could with Jerry Adams and the head, the front of the Republican movement, and he knew that he needed the exact opposite. And who is the exact opposite of, you know, a West Belfast former prisoner with um a dark history, then a middle class, privately educated woman from Rathgar, a Mammy we, two kids, and um A full
0: background. In the end, what's your conclusion in the book? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to get the book for free here, but we would... You're getting it for free anyway? (laughs) (laughs) That's true, that's true. Say nothing. Uh, But your conclusion, I mean, after spending so much time concentrating on Sinn Féin, Mm. I mean, what is your, what's your conclusion about what comes next? I mean, obviously, as we speak, Sinn Féin ride high in the polls. Yeah. Um, Many journalists, many politicians, many rival politicians to Shinfi and see that in apocalyptic terms.
1: Hmm. I think they have backed themselves into the a corner. I think they have made a lot of promises that they can't keep because the health and housing system is so bad in the Republic. I now, mean, I'm only speaking about the Republic, I'm not speaking about the North, but um, I think as well the fact that if you base your campaign on we're the outsiders and you're the elites and that kind of message there that's not going to play once they get into government because then you are the elite this notion that everybody hates us isn't going to fly when you're the Taoiseach um so I think they are very good campaigners and I feel like they offer an alternative It's very easy to offer a lot of alternatives when you're in opposition. And I think they know that. I am not under any illusions that they're stupid about this. The way they are talking about it at the minute is they know they need at least two terms to try and sort out the housing system in the Republic. I think they have cultivated the most impressive front bench in the doll. Like, if you look at Fianna Gaines' front bench, probably next, I'd say Sinn Fein, and then next would be Fianna Gaines. But if you look at Sinn Féin's front bench compared to Fianna Falls, I mean light years ahead in terms of their policy coverage you know people are worried to debate Louise O'Reilly they're worried to go up and they come out with Pierce Doherty these are people who are over their portfolio and I think that's what they'll campaign on is that these are the people they are not just TDs anymore they are experts in their portfolio and it's very good politics um, and I think we Mary Lou at the helm the next election is theirs if they want it but There are still huge hangovers from the military organisation that they once were. How they operate um, within the party is incredibly strange. How secretive and disciplined, there's a lack of autonomy for the TDs um, in terms of what they can say and what they can't say. You know, I could phone up a Fianna Fáil TD tomorrow and say, I need a line on this. And they would just tell me the answer straight away. If you phone up someone Sinn Féin will need to come back to you because they'll need to speak to the press office. And it's that sort of discipline. And, and like, I know champagne supporters will be listening to this and say, well, that's just good politics. But that's not how it's going to work in government. The other issue is that if they need to, they always say they can't change a policy unless it goes to Ardesh. You can't go to an Ardesh every time you need to change a policy in government. Um, and it's not going to be the same as the North because we know that the North and Stormont are completely different of fish. And they have ran their party for want of a better term, there are two different parties, North and South. The Southern Party is much more liberal, especially when it comes to things like abortion. They will say that their abortion policy is the same North and South, and it is, but the attitudes are very different. And I think what they're going to have this time, and this is something that the Green Party had in the last elections, was when they become very big, the party becomes a lot of things to a lot of people. It becomes a very broad church. And the bigger they get, they need to decide on what is First of all, what is collateral damage? What are they willing to give up for government? We've already seen them lose their long-held policy of boycotting the special criminal court. That's gone. Something we never thought we would see. So I think there'll be some very disappointed people in the next government if they get in, if they don't sit down now and decide this is what we're willing to compromise on, this is what we're going to uh, promote because government is very, very hard and it's not going to be like in the north where you can say, well, it's not just us because it's the DUP and it's SELP and it's alliance and blah, blah, blah. You're on your own here um, and they won't be able to blame Fianna Fáil or Social Democrats or whoever they end up going on the way because they'll be the biggest party.
0: Might it be those on the left of Sinn Féin who will be um, disappointed? For example, let's yeah. just give an example. I mean, for many people, especially in the younger wings of Sinn Féin, you know, support for Cuba, it is unlikely. Yeah that Ireland would leave the western world and join
1: it this the way, other world the notion the notion that Ireland in the not even just the South, but Ireland is an island but the notion of a 32 county socialist republic is completely impossible when Dublin and the republic is com- basically completely reliant on corporation tax and FDI from huge multinational conglomerates who are they are not going to want to overtax because if they overtax they will leave the republic and then there'll be huge unemployment. So the notion of a 32-county socialist republic is not possible in the way that people think it's going to happen. And I would be very interested to see how they work support for Palestine because when and if they get into government, they will be, and they still they are at the minute, Jane, are very reliant on America. You've seen, you know, Mary Lou McDonald meeting Joe Biden and support for Cuba and Palestine isn't really going to fly. Um, and they're not going to want to annoy America either especially the Democrats. So it'll be interesting to see if that shakes out. I don't have any guesses. Um, I don't know how it'll work, but it is something I would definitely be watching out for as well as their stance on NATO. These are all very difficult, complicated questions they'll have to deal with if they get into government.
0: What was the biggest surprise for you?
1: The bank accounts. Okay, tell us. Um, yeah, so there is a part in the book about when MLAs got elected and special advisors got elected, that they would open a new bank account um, in their name, and they did not have access to this bank account and Sinn Fein had the bank card, and that uh, stormant their official stormant wage, so say if you were a special advisor and you were paid I don't know, this is completely hypothetical, we'll say you're paying 65 grand a year, and that stormant wage would go under that bank account as normal and the bank account that you had before you were staff of Sinn Féin Sinn Féin would pay your wage of the average industrial wage of 40 grand uh, and the bank account you held before and they held the the bank yard and all the details to the bank account that they made you open there was something very um diantology I felt about
0: it Aoife Moore thank you very much thank you this episode of the Indo Daily was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel.